There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer, and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hello, um, just wandering around trying to find a quiet space in the house. Let's try this room. No, one in there. One in there. I'm going to sit on the stairs. I quite like sitting on the stairs. Um, I had a late night last night. I went and sang in Tetsford. Oh, now Richard's coming down the stairs. I can't find anywhere quiet now. <laughs> yeah, the gentle sound of his Birkenstocks going past. Um, yeah, last night I was in Tetsworth in Oxfordshire singing for Ed Harcourt and his wife Geeta's um, fundraiser for War Child. It was really lovely. I sang in the church. I got to sing Like a Prayer in a church. Hold on, Jess, I'll be down in a second. And then um, Friday I went to the circus and that was amazing. And now Mickey is pretty obsessed with circus stuff. We've been listening to circus music playlists on Spotify today. He's convinced he can do tricks and flips. Um, and I also sang at the Rugby Premiership final yesterday at Twickenham Stadium, which is quite fun. So, yes, it's been a busy old weekend. And that's why I've only just managed to sit down to record this now. It's 7pm uh, on Sunday night. Oh, it's like handing your homework in late. Um, <laughs> but I have got a really fascinating chat for you with Gemma Kemp, who is a forensic pathologist. So she does post-mortems. And she actually contacted me. And she said, she wrote to my management actually and said, I think I'd be a really good person for you to speak to because of my job. Which led me to think a lot about what caused her to contact me. Because obviously it's one thing to say, yes, it's important. I talk, you know, I've got an interesting job. Of course, that's great. But I thought, what else? And... 
I wondered if it's because Gemma's clearly brilliant at her job and it's clearly also something she really enjoys, but it's also very demanding and emotionally quite challenging. And I wondered if it was just quite nice for her to sort of say, I'm here and I do this. And sometimes some of it's really hard. And that doesn't mean she doesn't enjoy her work, but just it's quite nice to acknowledge that it's challenging. Because probably working, doing autopsies is quite a lot of the time quite a, I don't know, quite a quiet skill. You're on your own a lot of times with, you know, in a room with dead bodies. And maybe, you know, it's nice just to share aspects of that which are quite profound and poignant and what is quite interesting is that only the week before last I had my own experience that was also quite poignant dealing with death and that is now just be prepared this story is a little bit shocking but uh, I went away to Liverpool and I was doing a gig Uh, it was a private party that I was singing at so I went with just my sound guy and tour manager Duncan and we just pulled up at the hotel that we were going to stay at. So it was about mm, quarter to seven at night. I was on stage at half nine, so I had a couple of hours to eat supper, get ready. And as I got out the taxi, I went round to the back of the boot to collect my bag. And at the same time, the multi-storey car park opposite us uh something caught my eye and then there was a very loud sound of something hitting the ground and my first thought was oh someone's taken like a very heavy bag out of their boot and it's just chucked it over the side of the multi-story car park well in fact it wasn't a bag it was a person and it turned out that at the same time as Duncan and I were getting out the taxi someone had also decided to take their own life and had jumped from the top of this I don't know 13 14 story car park and the reason I am sharing that with you is because it made me think about some of the things that Gemma said about the relationship she has with the person who comes to her when they're dead and how she feels a sort of relationship with them in in giving them justice for however they died now sometimes of course that's just natural causes sometimes it, well, you know with the question mark Obviously, otherwise you wouldn't do an autopsy. But sometimes there are question marks and it's up to Gemma and her colleagues to figure out what's gone on. So I felt a similar thing with this man who had jumped. I thought, I wonder what was going on with him that led him to think that that was the only solution he had left. And given that it was only Duncan and I and the taxi driver that stood there, I thought about the fact that it's quite poignant that we were there in the last moments of that that guy's life. And I don't know who he was, and I don't know if there's any way of me finding out who he was. But um, if anyone has lost someone recently in that way, then yes, I can... I don't know, I suppose you just think about the concentric circles, don't you, of who's affected by, I don't know, the actions when people take them like that. I always thought about the friends and family, but I never really thought about witnesses, bystanders. Anyway, I suppose I'm just mulling on it, really. It's quite nice to talk about it with you. And with Gemma's chat, uh, obviously we had to be quite careful about confidentiality with the people she's talking about and the cases. And something that we had to 
edit out was some of Gemma's first cases um, because of the level of detail that we went into in our chat. So I understand why it's taken out. But with Gemma's permission, I can share with you that there was one really poignant description she gave of her first cases. She did three autopsies on the same... On her first day that she was actually actively doing them, she did three in one day. Mommy! Yes, Mickey, coming! And one of them was a, a teenage boy who'd been involved in a road traffic accident and they'd had to cut his puffer jacket off, which meant that Gemma was in a room with this young boy and... Feathers from his puffer jacket were... Hold on, Mickey, I don't really want that. YouTube kids. Were, like, flowing, flying up in the air while she was with him. And I thought that was almost quite painterly, but also really, again, poignant. Was that word again, I guess? Anyway, sorry for the waffling on, but um, I had a lot to say. And you've... Now, oh, Mickey seems to be watching something about a dinosaur. Oh, giving birth to another dinosaur? What happened there, Mickey? Anyway, having fun in the sun. I will see you on the other side. Um, thanks for joining me. So, Gemma, yeah, you're one of uh, like three people, I think, that I've ended up talking to who've put themselves forward for chatting to me, which I really love because I think with this whole thing with the podcast, I think it's really lovely when people think, actually, I've got... I don't feel I've quite been represented. And you're right, your job is something I've, I've never spoken to anybody who does what you do, but I'm deeply fascinated. So the treat is all mine. So why don't we start with that? What is it that you do for a living? Okay, so <laughs> I'm a forensic pathologist, which means I'm a, a medical doctor. So I went through medical training and trained in pathology. Essentially, the main part of my role is to do autopsies, also called post-mortem examinations, which is... Um, examining the body after death to determine how they died. Um, so we have what we term routine post-mortem examinations or PMs, uh, where there's not any suspicious circumstances. So there's kind of two categories. There's the forensic side, which is suspected homicide, murder, and the routine cases, which is where you just don't know why someone has died for a medical reason, or there may be an accident or suicide, drug-related, alcohol, all those sorts of categories. So if someone died in those circumstances, if you're in England it would, or England and Wales, it would be the coroner that instructed the post-mortem mm -hmm. examination. In, in Scotland, where I work, it's the procurator fiscal. So I do those, I do basically any type of autopsy, absolutely any wow. scenario whereby someone has died. And I don't, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but how frequently does a dead body need an autopsy? Um, it's, I don't actually know the percentages, but I think it's, it's not as many as you would think because most people who die, they are elderly and they're, or they have a long-term condition and thereby their doctor would be able to write up a death certificate for them. Mm -hmm. So, but... It, yeah, it, we've certainly got enough to keep us occupied. <laughs> yeah, so this is... Okay, so of a typical week, are you generally working Monday to Friday? Yes, yes, and then there will be on call around that. So I might be on call for a few days in the week or I might not, or I might be on at the weekend. Um, okay. But yes, the, the kind of day-to-day -day routine. So we have post -mortem routine post-mortem examinations every morning where I work, mm -hmm. um, and there's always plenty of them because I work in a big department with a big team so 
Um, in other parts of the country, they maybe have smaller mortuaries and they don't have so many postmortems every single day. They might have them every few days or something like that. But because I work in a, a large department, that's we we always have them every day. Every day. Every day. Okay. And how long have you been doing that? So um, I've been a consultant, so a fully qualified forensic pathologist for nearly eight years. And before that, I was in training for a long time. It takes a long time to train. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think um, my producer, Claire, was telling me about 13 years. Does that sound about right? Yeah, so I graduated in 2004 and then was fully qualified um, 2014. So that's all my, so that's like 10 years. I mm. mean, I could have done it quicker, but I'm... I uh, had trouble getting my exam for the first time and I had a baby, so I kind of lengthened the period of my training with that. Okay, so you were having a baby around the time that you were also qualifying? I had a, I got pregnant. Um, I took, so the, at the end of your training, you have a final exam, which is two and a half days of being examined. Ooh, that's intense. It's very intense. It's quite... Horrific. Is, is that a practical you're doing? Though? Practical and oral and written and microscope an slides. There's five while components. You're being watched. Yes. Whoa. Yes. Your hand really shaking while you're doing it. Yes. <laughs> it's like sort of take the idea of like a driving exam and then like amplify by a million. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word. So when did you get pregnant then? And that sort of so I did my first attempt at the exam when I wasn't pregnant mm. and then I rebooked and by the time I resat it six months later, I was, I think, 16 or 18 weeks pregnant after a really horrific first trimester. So feeling really, really nauseous, which is really good when you... <laughs> Great time. <laughs> looking inside off. people. <laughs> um I mean, I'm laughing mirthlessly, but actually that must have been really, really tricky. And you obviously passed that second time as well. No, I passed the third time. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, so then that was actually the first time I left my baby, was to go and sit the exam. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I had to go, I was living in Newcastle then, and I had to go to Liverpool, and I'd never left her. She was 13 months, and um, yeah, I was bawling at the airport, not just from leaving her, but the stress of the exam. So stressful. Because it felt like, oh, you've got to get it now. You've got to get it now, you know? Because yeah. you have to get it to, to qualify. So. Yeah. yeah, and you've been through it a few times and you've had that time off and had your baby and thinking, right, got to get back yeah. into that. And did you ever question going back to finish? Oh, no, not at all. No, no, I was very much... And I, I needed to only take six months off for financial reasons anyway and I needed to get back in to get, you know, um, it was just to have the time to study. But, I mean, it's hard to study when you have a six-month-old six to a year, you know. Yeah, and how are you finding that in your headspace, sort of studying? And <sighs> I just, do you remember I, it? I just, well. not really. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember sitting at the kitchen table, like, studying, and, and also, you know, I'd already done it twice, so mm. it's kind of... Yeah, the knowledge was there. It's just it's just a hard exam whereby it's kind of opinion based. I'm, I'm, that probably just sounds like sour grapes. I wasn't good enough, but you know, it was you have two examiners and they make the decision. So um, yeah, it was and it was the first time I'd failed anything. It was really hard because you know I'd always been sort of high achiever and passed all my exams to get to medical school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So that was a real, you know, kind of. Failing something, for, failing something so important for the first time and being a new mother, yeah, it was, it was a really hard time. Yeah, and I wonder actually if that's quite a 
common uh, character trait for people who tend to end up in those sort of professions that they tend to be highly academic, therefore pretty high achievers in that as well, studious, you know, and uh, yeah, so that first time of failing must have felt like a real shock and then doing it again sort of into a pregnancy and thinking, yeah, my head's feeling a bit scrambled here and I don't quite feel like myself if you're really feeling unwell as well. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was like that and uh, I had a very amazing boss at the time and the second time when I failed when I was pregnant he just turned up at the door with flowers which meant the world to me it was so it was, oh, that's nice. it was really lovely yeah yeah uh-huh. but your your determination that this was the field you wanted to absolutely yeah yeah uh-huh. what made you want to choose it in the first place how does that was it a sort of narrowing down as you went through your medical training or do you have to already know that's where you're headed when you start I mean it depends on the person you know it's up to them for me, for me, I, I always wanted to be a doctor from very young, uh, like eight years old. I was just fascinated with the way the human body works. It just just completely gripped me. And, and then sort of when I was in my teenage years and working towards my, my GCSEs and A-levels, and I have to admit it, it was the teleprograms, you know, the, oh, this looks interesting. And I can remember... Um, this because this is pre-internet. I had to go to the school library and look it up <laughs> in a careers book, you know, a forensic pathologist, and uh, and it said you needed a medical degree. And I remember in my cocksure sixteen-year-old way, oh well, I'm already going to do that, so I'll just do that. Amazing. <laughs> and so just yeah. And the thing is, because it's because it's dealing with death and not living people, you have to kind of keep it on the QT because you have to sell your. <laughs> sell my caring side that sounds really awful like oh I'm pretending I do care honestly but I just really wanted to do that job but okay why is that the bit that uh, what was it about it that really appealed I think it's just fascinating I mean it really is and and every day is is different and you're learning something new every single day you know and I, I know most of medicine is like that but I think as well because with a post-mortem examination, you need to know a lot about all the body systems. It's kind of like you're a GP of death. You know, you have to sort of know about a background of a lot of things, often reading up, obviously, because you can't know everything about everything. But um, it's that and the human interest, because you get a little tale of the lead up to this person's death and a little snippet of their life and what was happening and it's just fascinating. It's it just is. Oh, it's amazing. Like, and some of the stories... You know, truth is always stranger than fiction. We get no the most doubt. interesting. We get, and, you know, just, uh, yeah, it's it's really, really fascinating. And I've never lost that fascination, even though, you know, obviously the practicalities are a bit more difficult these days. When I was in training, I was like, oh, let's hang around, let's stay on. And now I'm working out how long it's going to take me, whether I can pick my kids up from school. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, those things that the sort of other factors of life kind of come in around you know, to sort of sit alongside all these things that we want for ourselves too. And I think, you know, I asked about, you know, what it is about that, you know, about forensic pathology, but I actually, I mean, I completely get the idea of the fascination of it. And it's funny because I know you said about keeping it on the quiet on one hand, but actually I think culturally we've kind of got quite a weird um, juxtaposition sometimes, haven't we, between an awkwardness with aspects of death, but in terms of entertainment, a complete fascination with it, actually. Yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. And I know that um, the programme Silent Witness is credited as actually seeing a big uptake in 
young women heading towards your profession? Certainly. Well, so, you know, so sometimes it's a really direct mm-hmm. thing of entertainment influencing things. Yes. I mean, there's more women in medicine now anyway. Like, I think there's more than half in the entry. So you're going to get more women in medicine represented, although there are still more male-dominated fields like surgery because of the hours, I think. The Mm. hours and the culture, I don't know. I mean, I never really went into that. But certainly there's been a change in forensic pathology. When I started out with my interest in my early 20s, you know, making an interest, it was... I think it was it was definitely male dominated. There were there weren't that many women in it, and now it's it's definitely more level. It's more even. Mm. Yeah. Typically, how much information do you get about the people you're about to perform an autopsy on? I usually quite a lot. So um, the the police have to um, produce like a, a sudden death report. So you'll get like their background, medical history, and the circumstances that led up to their death. You know, because you need to know all that to be able to put it into context of your findings from the autopsy to be able to come up with the reason really you know you can't just you can't just go in knowing nothing you need to know their background health and what's happened basically because a lot of it is putting together what you found with the circumstances because you need to come up with a cause of death which is just one line or two lines or something but then in your report you need to formulate conclusions where you discuss does this fit? You know, mm. say someone's fallen from a height, do the injuries fit that? Were they in a, a road traffic collision? Say they were a pedestrian hit by a car, you might get asked questions about the position they were in, things like that. So you you always need to know as much background as possible to to correlate it with the pathological findings. But some of that's, I mean, that's some of it's quite practical, that, mm. like they were yeah. found in this position, this is mm-hmm. what we think happened in the accident. But do you get things that are sort of surrounding that, like the medical history up to then and maybe... This is what they did for a profession. This is what, you know, their family. Did you get information like that as well? Yeah, yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's variable in some some places I've worked before, you got quite scanty information. But where I work currently, we get a lot, a lot of information. Yeah, so that's good. Um, well, is it always helpful to know all those things? Um, I mean, you know, in terms of practicalities and time, you can't always, uh, they're, they're quite lengthy reports and right. you have to kind of skim through to find the pertinent information. But um, if it's more involved or, you know, um, and then you you need to, it's always good to have more information than less. Yes, I can imagine that. But I suppose I'm thinking, I don't, like I've, I don't have a problem when I'm watching a film and there's violence in a film. But if I see anything remotely aggressive in real life, I find it quite shocking. And for some people, when it comes to actual, actually a real person in front of them, is it too much for some people? Have you seen people studying and then thinking, I can't actually do this? Not personally. I think if you come into your training, you've got far enough to know that you can deal with that. Yeah, I think you have to. We're a sort of self-selected bunch Mm. who you know that you can deal with it and in some ways from the emotional side you know I don't have patients who die I I don't know how say like a pediatrician does their job that cares for a child say with cancer and that I mean to my mind that's just I don't know how you go home and cope with that yeah Uh, you know whereas when I see them they've already died I didn't know them when they were alive so you got that kind of detachment yeah it's but but it the kind of the realization comes in with say having to meet the family or go to court and you see their family there, you know, and that's where it's like, that's what you do it for, you know, for them, for answers, for justice. Well, I was going to say, do you, 
do you feel like you're part of like actually there's a connection with you and that person obviously a connection that they'll never be aware of but that you are helping keep a voice for them going beyond exactly yes yeah and you you're often giving families closure and answers and Mm. and that is rewarding you know so um I work in Scotland now so we don't have inquests but when I worked in England and you have an inquest you'd often meet the family and you know not always but quite a lot of the time they would be really thankful and grateful that you've taken the time to explain to them and answer their questions and think and that's really really rewarding you know that's kind of what you do it for you know you you're well you do it for the, to do a good job and for justice etc etc but in terms of making that you know if if I've helped in any way with someone's grief then that's fantastic you know and is that part of your training to understand about the family's grief and to think about justice or is it more about the medical side of how you deduce what's going on yes it's much more medical we don't really yeah there's no specific training in that sort of side of it it's just experiential you know it's interesting though isn't it because that's presumably ends up being quite a big part of the job yeah it does and um I I was interested in this because I felt like there it isn't really acknowledged the kind of emotional impact on on us and and it's is very much a sort of well, you pick this, get, you know, stiff up yeah. the lip, get on with it type thing. And so I did do a little survey among my colleagues um, and I worked with a, a girl who's a girl, a woman who was a student in psychology and occupational psychology. And she looked into it and she did some long form interviews with a few of my colleagues. And that's something I've been meaning to get published <laughs> when I get a spare minute. Um and that was in conjunction with Dr. Richard Shepard, who's written a book. It's his kind of memoir of his cases because he's retired, but he does touch on the impact that that had on him. And it was, it was significant. And and I know him, mm. you know, I know him because it's a small profession. We all kind of know each other. We see each other at conferences and things like that. And he was very keen to get behind that, that yeah. exploration of the more... Yeah, because of course it's going to have an impact. Of, of course. course it is. That's why I said it must take up end up being quite a big bit and it sounds a little bit like it's sort of passed on to you to just sort of fill in the gaps for where that where those where that is because obviously it's pretty bespoke that's how mm-hmm. well you deal with those things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know there might be people that end up doing what you do because actually maybe something happened to someone that they knew and that ended up sparking you know there's all sorts mm-hmm. of reasons why you mm-hmm. get drawn to something that's got a vo- you know that sort of passion and vocational element to it so that is interesting and I wonder as well if that's part of a broader dialogue. We've, we, I've noticed recently, this might be something that's been going on for a long time, but it's sort of, I've noticed that there's much more books about people talking about the emotional impact of being involved in medical professions. It seems to be something that the conversation is happening more in that way. Yes, I agree. I think it is. There's been, been lots more books and chat and, mm. and just generally it's more acceptable to talk about things impacting you, I think, in society, isn't it? You know, people are more willing to say, actually, that was really upsetting, that was, a you know, and um, come forward and either get professional help or even at least tell a friend. And yeah. the more of that, the better, because the suicide rates, the suicides I see, you know, it's, it's a big problem, especially um, men and young men. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It really is. And um, and you're right, conversations and and just having that support and places to put things like that. I, I can't really see a time when it hasn't really been, been beneficial. Mm. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mm. but as for you personally it's one thing to have all that on your own but when you're also raising a young family so you had your first baby when you were qualifying yes yeah I was yeah I was (coughs) towards the end of my training Mm. Mm -hmm. um and was that something did you always want to be a mum yes I did (laughs) yeah um I just always did yeah yeah and uh and I never kind of questioned that I couldn't do both. I don't know why. I just, I was just like, yes, I'm going to be a forensic pathologist. And yes, I'm going to be a mother. And yeah, I'd... it works out better when you don't question it. You do. The, most things lead to, this is not very practical, is it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, so, then you had your second, two girls, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I... Um, uh, uh, so, I did my training in Newcastle. And then, at the end, um, I would have happily stayed but there wasn't a job for me so that's why I ended up in in Glasgow for for the job and um and I had my my second daughter I think a couple of years into that that job so there's there's three and a half years between my girls lovely and how did you have you managed to find what you're doing like when we spoke on the phone you talked quite a lot about compartmentalization is that something that you always knew you were quite good at or reliant on as a way of dealing with things I don't think I think of it in those terms. 
I just kind of get on with it, mm. you know? And there's always so much to do that you don't sort of have the time to contemplate whether how you're dealing with it. I mean, I'm quite chatty and I'll always share cases with my colleagues and I think that's good, you know? And, and I'll tell friends as well if something has upset me. And I think that's been a, a, enough, you know, to, to, to deal with it. But things stay with you, you know, certain cases stay with you. I, I, well, fortunately, child deaths are few and far between. We don't see that many, but that means that I could probably remember every single child I've been involved in, you know. Um, and that's worse when you're a mum, definitely. Like when I, before I was a mother, it was still upsetting, but there's something about them getting to the age. So I can remember when Frankie, my eldest, was like three and I was, it wasn't even my case. I was just, I was walking through the body store and there was a girl who looked just like her being like be prepared for a family viewing. And I was just like, I turned away. I was like, that's too close for comfort because she she had the same hairstyle and everything. And I was just like, I can't, I can't look at that. That's just, you know, so... Yeah, I think especially seeing ch children who are the age of your children, you know, it's it really brings it home. And but, but like wow. I said, few, thankfully, few and far between. Yeah, but it's amazing. I mean, even hearing that story sort of secondhand is sort of knocks the wind out of you mm. a little bit. And I didn't realize. So when you said the body store, can you describe? So when when you're at work, is that is that just like one floor of the building? I'm just I, trying to picture it in I, my head. Well, yeah, I, I mean. It's quite unusual where I work. I think it's probably the biggest mortuary in the UK. It's oh, absolutely wow. enormous. Um, no need to boast. <laughs> <laughs> you come from a different mortuary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and no, no offense. No offense to any other mortuary. It just happens to You're be doing really well too. <laughs> so, I mean, there's so the body store is uh, two walls of fridges, and it's, we've got storage for three hundred. So it's oh, enormous. Wow. And then there's the post-mortem really room and then a series of other rooms where... where but like I say, this is quite unusual. Most most um, mortuaries are, are much smaller and only have like a few tables for, for doing the post-mortems and smaller body stores. Okay, um, and are they often located within hospitals? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So is your one located it in is, a hospital? It is, yes, yeah. But there are some city mortuaries standalone buildings which may be owned by the police it's different places around the country of kind of historical what they've inherited in terms of but yes the majority of mortuaries are within hospitals yeah and does it make you you know completely unfazed by death or is it do you feel like it's because it's it contained within work have you ever been confronted by some death outside of work and it's we have like explored how that feels if it's different or the same that makes sense. Yes, I, I. It's like what you said before about seeing violence, and I don't think that gets any less shocking just because you've seen the end result of it. You know, in terms of real life. Um, uh, when I was a teenager, I saw I witnessed an accident. I saw an old lady get hit by a bus and her leg almost amputated. I was fourteen, and that was so upsetting because yeah, that's really shocking because it was just like. And it was like it was like it happened in slow motion because I kind of I passed her on the road and I just knew she wouldn't get across the road in time and I turned around and saw it happen. And that I don't think anything I see in my job takes away from how shocking that would be, wow. even you know, even though I was younger. You know, I think 
seeing an accident, seeing violence is, is always going to be shocking, irrespective of what I've seen. And I can look at a body with injuries and say, you know, that's horrendous. You can imagine, you know, um, but I think you have to take a step back because if you spend too much time standing there thinking, oh, that must have been painful and horrible, you know, you wouldn't be able to concentrate and do the job in hand. So what happens then? What kicks in if you're looking at someone who's had something horrific happen to the end of their life? Like what, what kicks in to go, don't just stand there staring? Just practicalities, the job needs doing. And you're working with it. alongside other people at that point, so they're maybe being... You know, because everybody does things in their own time, don't they? Yeah, no, we just... Um, out, um, in, in Scotland, we have two forensic pathologists because the Scottish law, you have corroboration, so you need two. So I actually do those cases with another, which is great because, you know, you have another colleague to, to yeah. discuss with and, and, and um, not that, you know, you could, other places where they do it on their own, that's totally valid as well, of course. You know, we're all experienced and everything but that is especially when you're starting out that was a major advantage and then you've got you know there's a much technician there there's a photographer there there might be police officers there everybody's there to do a job so you just you just get on with it yeah and how often then are you dealing with homicide that is that that is that quite a weekly thing it's like really unpredictable it's unpredictable you know so you might get a week where you have a few and then you might get a few weeks where you get none it's just, you can't, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And yeah. sometimes this results in you giving evidence. Is that always the outcome if you've worked on a... Not necessarily, a because you'd only give evidence in court if there's a there's an actual trial. So if someone pleads guilty to murder, then there won't be a trial. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, or, uh, or if, if at the outcome there's not enough evidence to press charges, then you wouldn't go to court then. But yes, um, going to court is part of the career and a part that I think puts quite a few doctors off because you know it's quite high pressure that's what I was going to say because again that's I think that's another skill set being able to be in that environment and to effectively do public speaking and to be looked at and scrutinized and cross-examined so is that part of your training yes as part of the forensic pathology training we do an expert witness training course because you're classed as an expert witness, which means that you, you're you allowed to give opinion evidence to the court, whereas, say, an A&E doctor who documented an, an injury, they would be classed as a professional witness, so they're just giving evidence as to the facts, whereas I and others um, are allowed to say, I think this caused this person's death or this caused this injury, and, you know, and it's quite, it's quite nuanced. It's how certain are you? You know, and how certain can you be? Mm. And um, because, you know, there are cases where it's obvious, you know, a stab wound to the heart, you know, it's clear cut, that's what's happened. It's a person been stabbed with a knife, et cetera, et cetera. But then there are cases whereby someone's been assaulted, but there's lots of other factors and you're trying to weigh up actually how did they die and how did they come by their death, as it were? What, what sequence of events led to that? And yeah, so it's... I mean, that's, again, yeah, that's a part of the job. It is, it is um, performing. It is, you know, you have to be comfortable with standing up and, you know, speaking clearly and being sure of yourself and, yeah. Mm. And so all the way alongside this, you've got your little girls. So how, how aware are they of what they... Sorry, and you have told me, but they're, are they, did you say eight and five? Uh, nine and five, like, yeah. Nine and five, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, 
probably too aware. <laughs> Quite a communicator. They, I'm, yeah. I'm like that as well, by the way. I tell my kids. I tell them every, everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously not everything in terms of like, you know, sexual violence. It has to be age appropriate, but they know what I do. I often get phone calls at dinner and, and they'll hear me arranging a post-mortem or something like that, or I'll be the mum in the corner of the school gra- school playground, like ringing the mortuary and saying, we need to do this at this time, you know? Um, so, yeah, no, they know. Um, my five-year-old's told her teacher what mummy does, <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, I do wonder probably whether I should rein it in a bit, but I, I, my elder girl... Um, really likes like Operation Ouch and you know the, the, the C, CBBC program and so I would never push them into medicine but if that's what they want to do she's she's just interested she's she's read a few books and stuff like that she finds it interesting yeah well I think you'd hope that no matter what they end up doing being fundamentally is interested in how human beings work is mm-hmm. pretty sort of endlessly interesting to everybody I yeah. thought um I did actually wonder, has it ever been that your medical training for examining dead bodies meant that you were able to work out what's happening with someone when they're alive and well, you know, seemingly well? Well... Or, you know, got an ailment or something? I mean, <laughs> it's a bit rusty because <laughs> I haven't treated any living people since uh, 2005. But um, but I think some th- things stay with you. You know, you mm. still know what sort of symptoms and signs people present yeah. with. Well, and, it might be something um, you've seen... And an autopsy and thought, when you do this, does it feel like that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can offer an opinion. It's a limited opinion. You know, if people come and what's this rash and think like my parents or something, what's this ailment? <laughs> I'm like, no, not really my area of expertise, mum. <laughs> and so during this time as well, when we were talking on the phone, you were saying you're now a single mum as well. Yes, right? yeah. So how, how long has that been the case? Um, so we separated just after lock, the first lockdown and we were divorced last year. Oh, wow. So you've had quite a dramatic couple of years. It's been interesting times, yeah. Mm. So I guess, you know, we talk a lot, broadly speaking, about things that make you feel like you're spinning a lot of plates, but that's another thing to introduce, isn't it, when you're going through something like that? And I know we we spoke to um, Helen from... Um, she's a comedy duo called Scummy Mummies yes, about, yeah. about divorce and about how that whole process is. Um and, you know, not to find, put too fine a point on it, but I suppose, you know, how has that changed the dynamic of the relationship with you and your daughters? Has it been a, a big factor? Um, luckily, we're on really good terms and he lives close by. So we still, you know, he sees them regularly and we, we, we still do things together as well. So that's really good. That's helped them. Obviously, when we first told them, they were devastated and it was really upsetting for all concerned because you know no one no one wants things to end you don't get married to have that outcome you know um but unfortunately you know that that's the way things went and um so and I I think it's I don't see that much difference really I think because we're I mean I know that they'd say obviously they want us all in the same house together but they they're pretty they're pretty level you know they seem pretty all right I hope you know and I just we both me and my ex both foster a kind of just open I just want them to be able to tell us anything anything that's on their mind speak to us you know and I I, I hope they can do that I feel like they can 
And when you're working, how, how has work changed for you as, you as your children have grown? Has it, has it sort of stayed in the same place in your heart as what it was at the beginning? Or does it sort of morph along when you're also raising a family? That's a good question. Um, no, I, I, think, I think it has. I mean, obviously in terms of time, that's, that's the main thing. Um, and just, but I just fit around them and... Um, I can, in terms of, obviously, I can't work from home to do my post-mortem examinations. <laughs> that might be taking these a bit far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think my neighbours would be impressed. Um, but but everything, everything else I can, so I can write my reports from home, I can take calls, and, and that was something that um, we'd actually wanted before our, um, lockdown COVID happened, mm. and um, it had always been dismissed as, as too difficult technologically and, and in terms of... Uh, security in terms of the information we hold, mm. you know, because it's medical records, it's private um, police records, things like that. Um, and then oh, and within a few weeks of lockdown, we <laughs> suddenly it had been solved and we got our, our laptops to go home, which has been an absolute game changer because it means that I can, you know, work with the kids in the house. More flexibility. Yeah, albeit the difficulty of having a smaller child when you're looking at injuries that they just barge in, oh, wow. <laughs> quickly reduce down the, the screen so they don't see anything too nightmare-inducing, you know. Yeah. And does it, can you sometimes, does it sometimes feel incredibly shocking afresh when you look at something? Or do you feel a lot more like... I think, I think I'm so it? used to it, you know. I think you just, you just, I'm just so used to it. And how important is it when you're looking at, the dead body how important is it that you reach a sort of conclusion of what happens can you do you always get to a point where you've sort of worked it out not always no unfortunately uh, it's quite frustrating where you know you've done all the tests you've looked at everything thoroughly and sometimes you just don't get an answer and you really want to have an answer for the family and you sometimes you just don't know why someone's died you know and I mean that doesn't happen that often and sometimes it might be because they've been they're de decomposed because they've been dead for a long time and obviously that, that renders it impossible to kind of find a cause of death. Um, but yeah, sometimes that, and you know, and then it depends on the circumstances. It might be, say it was a young person who dropped down dead suddenly, it might be the, the chance of a, a cardiac genetic condition or something which you can raise the possibility of, but that often doesn't leave anything physically traced that you can see. So, but yeah, that's the aim of the game. You know, the aim of the game is to come up with a, a cause of a death and, a, and, a, and an explanation. So that's what you're always striving towards and thinking about tailoring you, whatever you're going to test for, you know? Yeah, and I mean, you, you sort of touched upon when you know you saw that, that awful image of the, the little person that was the same sort of age and same hairdo to your, one of your children, but... When you're actually the one who has to perform the autopsies and that's what's happening, how how do you find it to then have to be able to sort of compartmentalise it? Um, so I think, you know, obviously certain cases get to you more than others. And and sad to say, you know, we, we have a lot of cases that we, in terms of, types of murders you know we see quite a lot of stabbings and there it's just quite routine I don't mean to sound callous with that but you know we do see them we're used to seeing them but then if you get a, a child or a young person or it's particularly violent or it's just horrible circumstances then you I mean it's 
it's all right while you're doing it because you just get on with it because you just you know got to document all the injuries you've got to get mm. through it and um but yeah I'm not I wouldn't lie I wouldn't lie by saying that I don't go away and think about them and I can still remember you yeah know. well it's making me think every time you read a story in the paper and it'll talk about some you know we've had quite a few cases haven't we coming out about awful ex- examples of abuse that's been happening mm-hmm. with kids and they're shocking and horrible mm. and it's you know you're sort of making re- remember that there are people involved in that in making those discoveries people that that are like doing the job you're doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you sort of don't you just you think you hear the story and you hear the, f- the fact that they've got and you don't think about that part of the journey that they've been on at the end where that's all being ascertained mm-hmm. yeah and I suppose you're part of a big team of people that are dealing with that from you know, the people who first got involved, people who first discover going to... There's lots of mechanisms for yes. that, to yeah. that route. Mm-hmm. To, you know, sorry, to that destination of coming to some kind of picture emerging of what went on. So there is that sort of comfort in that. And I suppose you've got to... It's a bit like you were saying before about, you know, being able to give something to the families and actually the justice element. That's quite a big deal, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's and try not to get over invested in a case but sometimes you know we're, we're only human and there yeah. have been times where not many but where I've felt that the outcome in the court case wasn't what I what I didn't feel like justice was done and that mm. that kind of doesn't sit well you know and for what about you do you come from a family of anyone else in the medical no thing? no oh. <laughs> not at all I don't know where no um my brother's not I've got one brother he's not um in medicine and my mum and dad when we're not so I don't know where it came from what do, what do they think of what you ended up doing I think they're they're really pleased yeah yeah um so I always enjoyed the kind of explaining sometimes difficult concepts to, so that anyone can understand them mm. And having two parents who are not medical, yeah. I'd come back from on my holidays in medical school and I'd say, let me explain this, I, do you understand it? And I'd practice examination and things on like that on them and they'd, they'd humour me, my grandparents as well. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, and I suppose when you're, when you're out and about and people ask what you do, what's the most sort of common thing that they ask you about? The most common comment is, oh, I know someone who does that because they've got like some person who did a forensic science course at uni. <laughs> they think, that, you know, they kind of think that because there's forensic science is chemistry, biology, like crime scene investigation. Right. But that's the science background, whereas I'm medical. So I think a lot of people so don't know. Was, yeah, yeah, put them together. Yeah, yeah. So um, mostly, oh, that's really interesting. Mm. You know, occasionally, oh, I couldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. I think most people are quite fascinated. Yeah. And actually, it was only really when we were talking that I sort of started to think about all the element of actually the, the reality of it rather than just this sort of slightly, well, if I'm honest, part of me feels quite sort of like quite excited at the idea of actually sort of the fascination of working things out. Maybe that's just a thing that some people are kind of going, oh, I'm really intrigued by that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, I do think that... I suppose as well, I'm just fascinated by culturally our relationship with death anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you perceive it from where you're standing, how most people deal with, with all of that stuff? I think that we don't really deal with it very well, to be honest. Mm. I think it's kind of, 
I think there's a lot of denial goes on and I think I think most people try to avoid it and use euphemisms you know they don't like to say oh she died you know they'll say she passed away or you know all other things and um yeah I don't think I don't think we deal with it well at all <laughs> no no um yeah it's true it's not really something that we're right I, I think the euphemisms don't help at all and I suppose for something that is so inevitable yeah, yeah. and completely unavoidable we're also just we kind of don't really want to think about you know the possibility like sometimes I remember as a kid having this realization like looking at my own hand and being like one day that hand is that's just gonna I won't be in this body anymore and it was like a real kind of you know when you get that hot and cold chill when you're little you start thinking about your own mortality. Mm, and I did the same with my parents. I think every child thinks, but what? When you kind of get, I think they say it's not until about seven that you realise the true permanence of it. Mm. And then it's like, and then you realise that your mum or dad could die. And I just, I think I used to just cry. I'd like, at the thought of it, you know? Yeah. I think, I think I'd probably still do that today, you know? Yeah, you know, when your daughters, like, so when your eldest reached that point, did you feel like you had things that could reassure her about understanding the unlikelihood of the the bad things happening yeah yeah I think you know she knows what I do and she but she knows that most people live to an old age Mm. you know and and I and I'm extremely fortunate that I've only lost my grandparents who were quite elderly you know yeah I I have friends who've lost parents younger and my own mum lost her mum when she was 14 and I I used to think about that when I was little I was like I can't comprehend how awful that must be. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, so no, I I, I try to, <laughs> you know, I try to impress upon them that the vast vast majority of people do live to a good age. Yeah, and have a nice life. You know, it's yeah. And there's a big difference between um, dying when you're old and then a, a mm-hmm. death that's got that's tragic. Yeah, a tragic certainly. Death is a different yeah. thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when you um, got in touch, Gemma, what was it that you really wanted? Why did you want to speak to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good appealed? question. <laughs> I, I just, um, I thought that I'd, I'd listened to a few of your other guests and I'd, I'd saw you'd not had a doctor on and I was like, oh, I could add into this as a, as a very different kind of working mum. And I'm not the only forensic pathologist working mum I you know I work with others as well who were juggling just the same and I think it's just um yeah it's it's the practicalities of the timing and but also you know the the kind of emotional side because you know you when you have children you you'd do anything for them wouldn't you you'd die for them and and then to go and see children that have that it's just it's just hard it just it just lends a different element to being a working mother like for example I um when I was pregnant with my first child I was on a pediatric placement so I was watching the post-mortem of a 32 year 32 week old fetus my baby was 32 weeks and I could feel her moving inside me and that's just surreal that's just like really I mean I didn't think I was bringing a living baby home you know <laughs> when you know every every single way that it can go wrong you know wow. um it's I didn't decorate a nursery or buy very much or anything like that you know and obviously all the ways that it can go wrong for mother as well with 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 childbirth that was and I was overdue and I was absolutely driving myself crazy with I didn't want to be induced because I knew about the risks of that I, I 
didn't want to have an epidural unless absolutely necessary because I'm slightly phobic about needles in the back from when I'd done a similar procedure as a junior doctor and like hurt someone not not permanently or anything like that but she you know caused someone distress and that stayed with me so I was like if I can avoid having a needle in my back that would be perfect and so and then I was like 12 days late with her and I was like, she finally made an appearance. But but I was, you know, reading the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists guidelines about the risks of stillbirth at this. And uh, yeah, too much knowledge is a bad thing when you're a pregnant mum. Well, that's what I was thinking when you were saying about knowledge is good. But I was thinking actually sometimes accumulation knowledge introduces you to the idea of all the bad things that can happen. I mean, in my own when I was growing up, I had in both households, so my mum's house and my dad's house with my stepmom, both my mum and my stepmom were trying to have another baby. And so my mum, she's spoken about this uh, publicly, so I'm not, you know, giving away her private things, but she had like 10 miscarriages while I was <sighs> growing up in her teen, when I was a teenage years. And then in the other house, my stepmom and my dad were having IVF. So I had that around me all the time. So I thought getting pregnant was really, really hard and mm-hmm. fraught with difficulty. So I'm thinking of you when you're confronted with these things and obviously you can reassure your kids that what I see, most people look like. But actually, maybe when it's your day-to-day, maybe it does. it is a bit harder to disconnect that. So when you came to have your second baby, did that, had you kind of, were you more relaxed about those things or was it worse with those things? No, it was, yeah, it was, I was more relaxed and, um, I think because I'd successfully had a normal delivery and a healthy child, I think that, that, and I chose to have a home birth with my second. Oh, amazing. Um, I always thought that sounds so nice. Yeah, it was. It was really lovely, um, apart from the agonising pain, of course, but, you know, <laughs> getting to go into your own bed afterwards was nice. Um, yeah, and I know that some of my colleagues were astounded that I'd made that choice. But they'd had different experiences, you know, with with needing assistance. And I took the very sort of practical, well, I'm low risk. And the the guidance says if you're low risk, the best place to be is a a maternity-led unit or at home. And I'd um, had my my first daughter in a pool and that had really helped me. And um, I hadn't been in a different area. So that was in when I lived in Newcastle and then moved to Glasgow and the there was a limited amount of pools in the in the the ward and I thought psychologically I really need the pool the yeah. pool really helped me last time yeah so that's kind of what pushed me into having the home birth and I had a fantastic midwife a really good experience oh how lovely and did you go back to work fairly soon after yeah six months okay and again never once questioned you it sounds like you really have found the thing that you want to do oh no and and I mean practically I had to because I was kind of the, the main breadwinner as well you mm. know so but no no definitely not it was um yeah I was always gonna do both so when it's all going well, what's your favourite bit of what you do? That's a good question. Probably just the the actual autopsies, really. Yeah, and then and then the kind of intellectual side of trying to put it all together. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah imagine it's that. satisfying. It is, and so it's not just what you find when you've done it. Like the, when done the autopsy, then you'll you'll send like blood and urine away for toxicology. You might send the brain away for specialist neuropathology, and and then you get all the pieces of the puzzle and you try to put them together. And sometimes 
you can it kind of all clicks and yeah. you're like yeah that's it that's what's happened and it's quite satisfying that does sound satisfying mm. and you know as I probably say like sort of trigger warning for anyone is a bit squeamish but I just really want to know what is the what is the routine of doing an autopsy so so you've got the body there naked obviously and you've read the report so you know what sort of case it is and then you will look them from head to toe a full examination for injuries or signs of any disease and things like that so you can make a record of that will dictate that and then if it's a routine post-mortem the mortuary technician will what's called eviscerate so take the organs out mm-hmm. so that's uh from tongue to pel- pelvic organs so, so you make an incision at the base of the neck mm-hmm. down to the pubic bone and remove the tongue and everything and whole so that's called the organ pluck so that goes oh. in a tub and then over to the trimming bench where I will dissect the organs in a set pattern. So you, you do it the same every single time, you know, um, so that you always weigh all the organs, you, you always cut them the same way. And then you have a documentation of every single organ weight and what you found. Wow. And so that's what happens every time. Yes. And then sometimes it's more involved depending on what's going Yeah, on. so they might be, say, um, for example, if someone had broken a limb bone, you might have to dissect to look for that or um yeah you just tailor that accordingly to what what the case is that is actually really fascinating and actually doesn't sound quite as sort of i mean presumably it's not there's certain processes that happen to the to bodies once you're past death so does it have a massive effect if you're doing it quite soon after death or a long time um so the only the only thing is if you do a postmortem quite soon they're still warm which is wow it, I, not pleasant I don't know I don't enjoy that you know I I want them to be cold and been in the fridge and um, and then and then obviously the other end is if they're very decomposed you might very decomposed they might just be bones you know but levels of decomposition you've got to deal with that which is um, maggots and obviously the smell and and you sometimes doing this on a location um so do you mean going to uh, like a scene yeah so sometimes we don't we don't go to many crime scenes um sometimes people are injured and then die in hospital so there's no need you would only really go to um a scene or a locus as it's referred to in scotland um if you needed to assist with movement or if there's a question of a sexual assault to take them the samples mm-hmm. but otherwise even if a body is found quite badly decomposed it might still end up coming oh yeah way. it'll always end up coming to the mortuary for the post-mortem examination yeah mm-hmm. and do you feel a bit like there's like almost like the sort of club of people for whom this is commonplace everyday work and then there's the people on the outside of it who ask questions like me <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah i've got lots of friends who are colleagues both pathologists and mortuary technicians and so yeah well, I find that quite reassuring because I think it means that you know everybody's human and yeah and it, and also I there's do- a sort of routineness to it that I think is quite yeah again quite reassuring yeah I, t- I think you're running you know, around going oh dead body or being really serious that's not really part of how we deal with anything else so why no, should it be that exactly yeah and I, I think you know we're, we're always respectful mm. obviously we're always respectful and they always get obviously stitched up to a high standard so that they're viewable you know they're presented the wash that everything you know mm. and um the, all the people who work in the mortuary pride themselves on that you know giving a really good service to the family 
And does you it know. change your res- re- res- uh, relationship with your own body? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, t- I try not to be a hypochondriac, mm. you know, but I do, I do appreciate my health. Yeah, I do. I, I think. I think more so in recent years. You know, I've definitely tried to optimize my own health, and I think you know I want to be around here for as long as possible for my daughters. Is that part of your swimming as well? Because you like going. I do. I go and launch myself into cold bodies of water with a load of other crazy sort of. I'm not going to say middle-aged women. Are we middle-aged? I don't know. Mothers. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm middle-aged. I'm 42. That must be middle-aged, wasn't I'm it? I'm 41, so then, okay. yeah, yeah. It's all right. Let's own it. It's fine. Yeah. So there's lots of women who go <laughs> hooping and hollering as we get into four-degree water. Wow. <laughs> is that something you do quite quite often? Every week now, yeah. Really? Yeah. And have you always done that, or is it... Quite... Took it up during lockdown. A friend of mine had been doing it for years, and um, with the swimming pool shut, and, you know, the thing was, it wasn't it wasn't too cold when I took, up it and took it up in May, and then and then the temperature drops, and one year we were breaking the ice. It was fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. What's good, what do you like about it? It just makes you feel alive, it, and it and no matter if you're having a bad day or whatever, it just makes you feel really good. It really does, and I think it's got a lot of health benefits as well for your immune system, and it's meant to stave off dementia and things like that. But you just you kind of go along and you think, oh, do I really want to do this? It's so cold, you know. I'm totally crazy. What am I doing? And then you always feel better after you've done it. You yeah, know? it's just just really kind of life affirming and yeah, yeah. the people who get into it seem to find it really exhilarating and just gives actually a real clarity yeah and I guess it's it's part of that thing that's spoken about a lot about mindfulness isn't it of just you are just completely that person in that moment and mm-hmm. you're nowhere certainly else. yeah 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 uh-huh. and also I mean there's some absolutely gorgeous places to swim in Scotland you know Loch Lomond and all the western Nile and the sea and everything like that and I'm lucky that they're close by and you just being just getting out getting you know when it, say for example I'd I've had a day where I knew I had to go in to do a, a murder post-mortem and I'll, I'll go up and have a swim first and then I know I've had some fresh air, I've had some, because I'm in a in a room with no windows and I might be there for hours and it's just, yeah, it's, so it's, it's physical and mental health really, yeah. Yeah, I can see there's lots of benefits to that. And I did wonder, I mean, forgive me if I'm kind of getting the wrong end of this, but when you were talking before about the emotional support that's there for you when you're dealing with all this stuff and you've got your medical training and that's all pretty, that's really incredibly solid and thorough. But this bit, this gap that you've had to form about the tricky things you see and having a life outside of it, I wonder if that was part of why you wanted to speak to me as well, just to sort of have that acknowledged a little bit. Yeah, I think like, I know in the sort of blurb of your podcast, it's it's like about finding a life outside of being doing whatever job you do and being a mum and I it's quite small (laughs) that part for me you know Mm. um just just because of pressure of time you know yeah yeah but I try to get the girls involved in you know they've been up swimming I mean not not when it's icy (laughs) I think that would be classed as child abuse but (laughs) chucking them in an icy lock but um you know they've swum in, in the summer with me and and tried to get them outside and do things like that so so yeah but there are things that I would I would like to have more time to do I used to I used to be I used to do Amdram I used to be in a choir and things like that and I haven't really had time to do that and 
then it all shut down. So yeah. <laughs> I was about to sign up with a choir and then and then that stopped. So hopefully in future. Oh, I'll all come back. Mm. And have they ever gone to work with you? They have. They've been in the tea room. I haven't let them, you know, um, when, when Frankie was a baby, I think she'd been in about five mortuaries before she was six months old, you know. But they just, yeah, just to meet my colleagues. Um, mm. So, yeah, Frankie says she would she would like to see it. and I'm like no you know no you're not old enough yeah. I would be desperate to see it yeah. When, yeah when are you gonna let her or I mean I suppose you've got the it would be whether it would be allowed yeah I mean maybe if she's like teenager and applying to medical school mm. then that's a different matter isn't it you know but yeah, of um, course you've got the um protection of the people's mm. privacy and everything mm, exactly but in terms yeah. of her actually just seeing it mm. I bet, yeah, if it was me, if my mum, I'd be like, please let me come and see it. I'd be, I'd be completely fascinated. I'm completely fascinated now. <laughs> ah, well, thank you very much for coming to speak to me and for no so patiently asking, answering all the questions you've probably been asked by lots of people many times over. Pleasure. I do think what you're doing is, is amazing. And I, I think actually that thing you said when you're saying you know, about the doctors who have to work with people who may or may not make it, it reminded me of, um, as a podcast... I've been listening to called Room 5, which is done by another guest that I had called Helena Merriman. And it's about people who get these shock diagnoses. And in one of them, she spoke to the doctor, the consultant that had given someone this news that he had cancer. And she said to the doctor, how do you find your relationship with your patient? And he said, I can remember every single one. And then he started crying. And it was actually a really significant moment because it made you think about, I think we... We're so used to having these things kind of... Sometimes when you're med- when something's medicalised, you can feel like it's also... It sort of knocks the edges off you. You're sort of homogenised. And all the edges... The person that you were when you walked into that building or that consulting room, you're sort of not that... that, that that's all outside there. You're just a pile of notes. So sometimes, you know, like, like that boy you said, you know, the 15-year-old boy with all the feathers and that car accident and getting the information... There's all this world of things that happen around people. But actually, how you die is like the last question mark of what happened in yeah. the big, big I, life events, if you like. I think, and I, I think it's an immense privilege being any type of doctor. I mean, you know, mm. even just the training. You know, I get to see people come into the world and go out of them and everything in between, you know. like like, um, And it's, uh, it, is, it is such a privilege. You're there with people yeah. at, at, you know, such key moments of their life yeah absolutely and, and presumably sometimes you see something on them like a tattoo or some bit of jewelry or something do they mm-hmm. still have jewelry on when you see sometimes yeah yeah, yeah. those things are really personal choices yeah uh-huh and, and then it tells you a little bit more about them and just sort of I suppose I'd, I'd probably find myself inclined to sort of chat to them or something yeah I think I I, I mean there's a difference uh, yeah I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not religious um but I think you have to keep an open mind and I always felt like it was different when someone had just died as opposed to someone I see who's been dead for a while and if you believe I I don't know what I believe but I just feel like you know if there is a soul or something like that it's 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 kind of gone when by the time we get no I totally understand that I've only really seen one dead body of like a family member Mm. and just wasn't the same person no, anymore no. and I was actually so shocked at how quickly it was the carrier mm. not the person mm-hmm. it's actually really remarkable mm. mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know really where I stand on all that, but it's definitely, there's definitely a shift. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people find it difficult to recognise their relatives because I think, you know, there's it, it, we need the, the, the life and the, the in your eyes, really, to, mm. to recognise someone who they are. It can be very difficult to, to see yeah. them. They're just not they're them and not, not them at the same yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. They're not there. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely amazing. I'm sure I'll think of more things later. Maybe I'll have to text you or something. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, I hope that's given you some food for thought. And thank you very much to Gemma for reaching out to me, actually. I had a lovely conversation with her and it really stayed with me. Um, yeah, I think I think it's quite incredible, really, what people end up doing for a living. And it's interesting how, you know, we're still very squeamish about the idea of death, but obviously all these jobs need to happen and all these roles need to be filled. And... And actually, I know a lot of people who are really fascinated by all of it. I think I'm pretty fascinated by all of it. And how, finding out how you make it part of your day-to-day -day and the bits that become almost quite mundane. Well, it's a very interesting insight. So if anyone out there listening has got a job that you think I need to hear about and you'd like to talk to me, then please do reach out. It's really nice to, um, to hear from you and hear what's going on. And yeah, everybody's got a story, haven't they? Meanwhile, I'm sat here with Mickey. He's watching uh, Ryan's toy review, Ryan's World. Are you familiar with him? You probably are. He's... Who's that, Mummy? That's Ryan from Ryan's World. No, I mean, what are you talking Oh, I'm recording... Um, oh, I'm recording a bit of my podcast. And uh, Ryan, he's ridiculously successful. I think last year he earned something like $22 million. And he's about, like, 10. And his... YouTube channel's called Ryan's World, and I always say, it's Ryan's World, we just live in it, don't we, Mickey? I'm not watching it. I know, you've stopped now, you're watching a little dance routine now, aren't you? Look at that, look at them jumping around. Um, anyway, thank you to you, thank you to Gemma, thank you to Richard for letting me hand my homework in very late on a Sunday, thank you to Claire Jones for being my brilliant editor and uh, producer, sorry, it's not my editor, that's Richard, oh my God, my brain. Ah! And thank you to LMA for the amazing artwork. But as ever, thank you to you for lending me your ears. And um, I hope you have a peaceful week. And I hope you don't mind me sharing what happened in Liverpool the other day. It's just quite... My mum told me not to compartmentalise it. Oh, actually, I'll tell you something really interesting. After I'd witnessed the shocking event, it was quite traumatic. I happened to have my Game Boy with me, which had Tetris. And there was an Oxford study that said, if you play Tetris within six hours of a traumatic event, it can actually help to reduce post-traumatic stress. So after I went back up to my ho hotel room after the police were there and, you know, the, the, the chap, you know, definitely, he tried, they tried some CPR and he was declared dead. And, you know, we'd given our statements to could go upstairs. Um, I played Tetris for quite a while before I did my gig. And I'm actually pretty convinced it helped, actually, because I felt okay you know definitely something i had to process a bit but i felt okay um in terms of my anxiety anyway oh, so you know if you've got a game boy and some tetris do it if you see anything shocking it might help all right on that note <laughs> have a lovely week and i'll speak to you next week for oh the last one of the series Ooh, who will it be see you soon What's that?
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.